I'm Philip Johnson, and you're on The Broken Journey. So what we have here is going to be a follow-up to the Trust the Story video. This is not mandatory, so watch it if you want. Don't watch it if you don't have the time. That's fine. But it just adds some kind of layers to the idea of the spirit being an artist and a storyteller and crafting something beautiful in the text of Scripture. So this is going to cover a marriage in crisis, a strange brew, Gilgamesh, the flood, creation, some more chiasms, a little more creation, some odd numbers, some covenants, bows, and El Shaddai. So we're going to kind of work through that with these slides. So this is the second part of the God who knows when to say enough. As we uh, talked about last time, when God ends creation with resting. We want to remember that God is a artist. The Spirit is an artist. And this is the God who knows when to say enough. And the Spirit layers truth into the Word of God. And it's just layered and layered in the text. And it's rich. So what you read in one text in one passage may pop up later because this is all interconnected because while there are many writers there's only one author but today we'll focus on a really strange passage in numbers numbers chapter 5 and it's called a test for adultery and it starts at verse 11. I'm going to read through to verse 29. If you have your Bibles, read along or just read on the screen. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself and there's no witness against her, she was not taken in the act. And if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. So he's going to sprinkle some dust into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place her in, hands, the, in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand the priest shall have the water of, of bitterness that brings the curse. Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman that take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people, when the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell. May this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. 
Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off in the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial portion and burn it on the altar and afterwards shall make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter her and cause bitter pain, and her womb shall swell, and her thighs shall fall away, and the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. This is the law in cases of jealousy when a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself. Is this not the clearest passage you've ever read? It seems so obvious. What we have here is the law of Sotah. It is a test for adultery with a grain offering of remembrance. There's holy water mixed with dust. There's a curse written on a scroll and all goes in the water for her to drink. So what's happening here, there's a man who's suspicious of his wife. She doesn't do anything to make the suspicions go away. And it's pretty much a mysterious passage. The two seem to be engaged in some mutual scorn and suspicion. He's demonstrating some jealousy, which is beyond what is normal, possibly a bit controlling. He does not want her to be alone with this other man. And she responds by inviting two other people to watch her go into a room alone with the specific person she is forbidden to be with by her husband. What you have here is a marriage that is so far out on the rocks that you couldn't get any further. And this is the background for the Law of Sotah. There's then this ceremony that she volunteers to be a part of. She does not have to do this, but she does engage in this strange ritual of waters and curses and scrolls and the threat or promise of being cursed with childlessness or being blessed with a child if she survives the process. And so you have this strange law to answer the question of a marriage, which is very strange, strained, and what seems to be this domino effect of jealousy gone too far, scorn and spite in response. But in all of this, there's still this potential for something good to happen. The scripture seems to be creating a way out. God allows for his own name to be erased in the waters if he can bring peace back into this relationship. So here in this passage, you have God saying, I will sacrifice my name, myself, to heal this relationship. The marriage has gotten to the point where the husband can't accept her assurances and she's finally done giving them. This guy's thinking, if only there was a sign from heaven or something I could have that would help me to begin to trust again. And that's how this law ends up providing the potential for reset to the marriage. Imagine how it could go. Wife drinks the waters and everything is fine. The husband realizes that he was paranoid and behaving a bit out of line. Wife sees that she responded inappropriately but felt pushed into a corner. Hmm, maybe we need to work on some things. 
get some counseling, some help to break this cycle we keep finding ourselves in. So it's this very strange ritual to us. But in an ancient context, you can begin to see how it could very well have some practical real-life ramifications. That's one level of the text. But like we saw in Genesis, the previous lecture, this book, the Bible, is intricately connected and has layers upon layers. So what could this possibly have to do with Noah, with Genesis, and with the God who knows when to say enough? So, notice the language here. The language of the Sota, cursed bitter waters, erases, remembrance, ruach for spirit, Adam for dirt, trespass, jealousy. So you have this elaborate curse that's drawn up on a scroll and placed in these strange, cursed, bitter waters. Verse 23, the curse on the scroll and the waters erases the name of God and the words written on the scroll. But there's something else mixed in the waters. The dirt is mixed in as well. So what might this remind you of? Waters and dirt and an erasure of some kind. Verse 12, the woman is suspected of trespassing against her husband. What other story involves water and dirt, something being erased in the water? What other story has the same Hebrew word in verse 12 for trespass? In Noah, how does the dirt get mixed in with the water? Through the flood. But it's not just thematic. The same language is used. God says in the flood story that I will erase, not kill, not remove. He chooses the word erase. I will erase man. When you read the language of these two stories, you get the use of Adam, which means to come from earth. And the notion that God will use water to erase Adam, dirt, earth. So what kind of law is this? It's a law that deals with jealousy and trespass that involves a judgment of remembrance. In the law of the Sota, we are told, verse 15, that the husband is overcome with the feeling, and the word for feeling used there is ruach, spirit, of jealousy passing over him. The beginning of this law sounds an awful lot like the end of the flood story. Genesis chapter 8 verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a ruach blow pass over the earth and the waters subsided. Now think. Where have we heard the language of ruach and waters covering the earth and movement and parting waters and new life? Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the ruach of God was hovering, fluttering, moving over the face of the waters. The God who knows when to say enough when he is creating is the same God who knows when to say enough when he is repairing broken relationships. Now, 
Think about the exact language used and the themes develop in this strange law in Numbers chapter 5 of jealousy and remembrance and chaos and ruach, the name of God, erasure, promises, bearing children, new life. This word is layers upon layers upon layers. But how does this story of creation, which ends with God resting, which ends with a God stopping his creative efforts because he is the God who knows when to say enough, connect with the flood of Genesis chapter 6 and the story of Noah? Well, I'm glad you asked. The story of the flood is not unique to ancient history. There are a number of cultures which predate the book of Genesis, which tell the stories of a great flood. A deluge which will wipe out the earth. One in particular is the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's the oldest one recorded. It's one of the oldest recorded pieces of literature in this world. There's a hero that goes on a journey and he encounters many Mesopotamian gods. He meets the god, finds out what the god's doing and wants, and then ultimately the god gets angry and is going to lash out and destroy the world. One god in particular wants to wipe out the world in a flood. His name is So-Ut-Nap-Mashim. So So-Ut-Nap-Mashim builds a raft, puts all the animals on it, this is the hero, and outsmarts the god. Now, what are some biblical names from Mesopotamia? The Chaldeans from Ur, or Ur. Who else do we know in scripture that is from Ur? Abraham. Genesis takes the stories that Abraham and his descendants grew up hearing and tells them in a different way, showing that this God is different, not like the other gods. So, Noah and chiasms. There's a phrase at the beginning of the story of the flood. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. This phrase is also repeated at the end of the story, which tells us, because it's bookended, we should be looking for a Hebrew form of poetry known as a chiasm. So the way to see this chiasm is by paying attention to the use of some numbers and phrases. So if you were to read from 810 all the way down to 919, if you were to read your way through this flood story, you would look for the numbers 7, 7, 40, 150, 150, 40, 7, and 7. So you would see those numbers in that pattern play out in the story. And what you find at the center verse of this chiasm, there ends up being a verse we've already read in Genesis 8, chapter 1. It's at the center. And God remembers Noah. And what happens next? He sends a ruach, a wind, over the earth. And then watch this. A window is opened. Light and darkness. The rain stops. Water is suspended in the clouds above and below. Ground appears. Noah sends out a raven. Birds in the air. Noah sends out a dove. Animals on dry ground. Then man comes out. And where are the men placed? Where is man placed? In a garden. To do what? Tend it. And do what? Be fruitful and multiply. We have now repeated the six days of creation, day by day by day. What's next? Sabbath.
Genesis 9, 8-17, the God who knows when to say enough. Covenant gets repeated multiple times. There's a covenant between Noah, the earth, all of creation. Seven times the word barit is used. Earth gets used seven times. The word for clouds gets used five times. Rainbow gets used three times. So what is it about odd numbers that is unique? If you're an odd number fan, then you know we're on the same team. What's unique about odd numbers is that when split, they always have a center. Odd numbers point to the center, which is what a chiasm does. Now, this is fascinating if you go and read through this story. Wouldn't it be interesting if you took all of the center mentions of these words, Barit, earth, clouds, rainbow. If you took all of the center mentions of these words and they completed a Hebrew phrase. What if you took the fourth mention of covenant, the fourth mention of earth, the third mention of clouds, and the second mention of rainbow? Wouldn't it be fascinating if those mentions sat at the exact center of this little portion of God's covenant? Well, guess what? They do. Nine at Genesis nine fourteen through fifteen. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. So this is what's fascinating. Hebrew doesn't actually have a word for rainbow. It just says bow, which is a what? A weapon of destruction, bow and arrow. When God says, I will put the bow in the clouds, it is pointing where? If you set a bow down, the bow is pointing where? The bow is pointing away from the earth. God says, I will put my bow so that is pointing towards myself. This is the God who knows when to say enough when he's creating. And here we see a mirror image of a God who knows when to stop breaking down. He knows when to say enough. Now, the language that's used here is very specific language. It's the language of a suzerain vassal covenant. This is a two parties to a covenant. In this kind of a covenant, the less powerful is in a predicament, typically because in they, have, they better surrender or they're going to be destroyed by the more powerful party. So they, they broker an agreement and they agree to become the subjects of the more powerful party in the covenant with the understanding that if they don't hold up their end of the covenant, then the more powerful party will wipe them out completely. So if you make a covenant with the suzerain, you will receive a sign like a receipt that you can show as proof of the covenant. So in the ancient world, though, it was the responsibility of the vassal, the weaker party, to produce the sign as proof. So if you couldn't, you were then deemed to be in violation, and the powerful party can do whatever they want to you. What God is saying is, I'm putting the sign in the clouds, and it will be a bow pointing to me, and I will remember the covenant, even when you don't remember. When you lose your way, I will remember it. This God, when compared to the rest of the world's gods, stands out. 
This God, even when it seems he is destroying everything, is doing so because he wants to save it. The story begins with a humanity whose every inclination is evil. A humanity that does not reflect their creator. A humanity that does not image their God. A humanity that does not know when to say enough. They just keep destroying, keep lusting, keep tearing down, keep devouring. And God sees them and says to start the story, I'm going to destroy the earth because every intention of their heart is evil. But by the end, he says, even though every intention of the human heart is evil, I will not destroy the earth because this story is about a God who knows when to say enough. This story is about a God who is for creation, for redeeming it, for restoring it, for bringing creation back together. Now, in the book of Genesis, there is a phrase that is used for God. It's El Shaddai. We don't actually know how to translate it exactly. The most common rendering is that it means God Almighty. The word Shaddai has several uses in the book of Genesis, but would you care to guess the number of times the phrase El Shaddai is used? Seven. Or seven? Or seven. Is this a coincidence? In Hebrew, the letters used in a phrase can be pulled apart to create other words and or phrases. When you look at the consonants in El Shaddai, you actually find a phrase. The phrase that is spelled out when you pull out the consonants of El Shaddai is the phrase, the God who knows when to say enough. So how does the spirit operate in the text? It permeates the whole story. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. All the way into the New Testament, Christ is put on trial and he's accused. And he says nothing. Because this is a God who knows when to say enough. He had already said everything that needed to be said at that point. And so I wanted to share this with you to kind of tie in, to really hammer home the point that when you're reading the text of Scripture, you're reading something that is intricately interwoven from beginning to end. The Spirit permeates everything. The Spirit of God is in it all, bringing everything together in the text and in our life right now. Thank you for joining me on The Broken Journey. I hope that you feel a little more encouraged. I hope that you'll trust and lean into His grace a little more each day. If you like this podcast, hit subscribe, leave a comment. If you go to thebrokenjourney.com, you can click the little microphone in the bottom right corner and you can even leave a voicemail. I'd love to hear from you.